doesn't fare well or it doesn't last long. This is a big problem. And the big problem, again, is the lack of armored vehicles and armored medical vehicles for evacuation. So, yes, um, some of these vehicles that were delivered, um, probably all of these vehicles that were delivered by Western allies, specifically Bushmaster, uh, they are being operated by the 70, 72nd Brigade close to them. But the problem is that they the numbers are low. They, they don't cover the need. The need is uh, way bigger and the, the request is way bigger. And yes, they see them. They appeared. They are being used. These armored vehicles that were delivered and supplanted by Western allies. But the, but the need... And the request is way bigger. The numbers should be bigger. They don't cover the whole necessity, unfortunately. And for them, as for motorized uh, infantry, uh, for their specifically for their reconnaissance platoon, uh, their reconnaissance platoon platoon is is using pickup trucks, as mentioned earlier, pickup trucks that were supplanted and delivered by volunteers by civilian volunteers who procured them for 93rd Brigade and gave them, essentially delivered those pickups to Roman's platoon. And even one Toyota RAV4 or RAV4 SUV, which was procured or purchased by the fighter, by the soldier himself. So it's a private vehicle essentially being used uh, during the war uh, just because because there is a shortage, there is a shortcoming of vehicles, and uh, the necessity is being covered by all means, either by civilian volunteers or even by the fighters themselves using civilian pickup trucks or using SUVs. And as mentioned, they don't fare well uh, in combat environment because of the obvious reasons, because of the extreme load extreme uh, conditions and everything else and because of the the warfare itself so this is is this becomes a big issue for medical evacuation because if evacuation is necessary it's being it's being done by civilian pickups and trucks which also create problems potentially the same goes for artillery because uh, the delivery of ammo artillery shells in many cases being done by civilian trucks civilian pickup trucks because of the shortage of specialized military trucks and military logistics uh, equipment to to support artillery and deliver ammunition to artillery so they try to overcome this and you see and you hear how they do it but this is a big issue again logistics and um, the lack of specialized armored vehicles uh, which were delivered and were supplanted by allies but in low numbers unfortunately just because the need is so big uh, <clears throat> thank you walter um thank you roman for the uh, informative answer um best of luck with your fights the whole of the free world is with you slava ukraini Я маю бік потихеньку, вибачаю, що так. Дякую дуже всім за увагу, і я думаю, що завтра в мене вийде доєднатися. 
All right, so Roman has to leave because uh, he's been called and uh, he will try to join us tomorrow, maybe around the same time. And uh, whoever has questions, please do ask. Uh, in any case, I will try to relay them to Roman or get them ready. Essentially, we were joined by Vulcan, Balkan84. If you have a question, please do ask. And Nina, and uh, let's move on with the questions. And again, Roman will try to join us tomorrow, approximately at the same time. Vulcan, if you have a question, please do ask. Yeah, my uh, my question is: with uh, Western equipments arriving, how's um, with more specialist equipments? How are uh, units trained on uh, on that equipment? With say artillery pieces arriving and uh, and such. So what what ha happens is before before these announcements are made by the government or defense secretary then a certain number of Ukrainian troops are already trained up on this, um, this bit of equipment. And then by the time it's announced, that equipment is within 24 hours, 48 hours approximately. Not all the time, but most of the time, you will see it in the front line, on the front line in Ukraine. The West are not going to send equipment to Ukraine, which they have not already pre-trained troops on um troops whether it's airframes whether it's um equipment uh artillery anything like this they, they, it's all, all the training is done before before they get it and they have adequate um people trained on it as well as i believe they'll probably be doing train the trainer so they'll also they'll they'll train five people a greater deal who can then go over to Ukraine and then pass on the training uh, at, at wider at wider length, if that makes sense to you. All right, thanks. Nina? Hi. Uh, I was just um, thinking this. Uh, how is the... How are these needs from the front line and... Uh, uh, getting to where they need to get and uh, like moving forward from there to the west uh, uh, are they uh, yeah how how is the the this going how is it going or how does it get there sorry i, I didn't catch that uh i mean yeah how how is uh, if you need some kind of special, like a medical, uh, uh, what is the name of the cars? Like, uh, An ambulance. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, uh, you know what I mean. Uh, These uh, armored vehicles. Uh, yeah, so, you, yeah I, get, I, I think I know what you mean. So the UK have provided an extra 14, 13 or 14 Mastiff um armored vehicles which have been kitted out to be used for um basically as ambulances right they're, they're armored they can take um ied ied hits mine hits they can, um quite a lot of um i mean they can take quite a lot of quite a lot of damage to be fair and still be intact on the inside so the uk have 
uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember how many they initially sent over, but they've just sent another 13 or 14. And it is in my understanding that these 13 and four, or 14 that went over are all um, armoured, basically armoured ambulances, if that makes sense for you. Yes, uh, I, I'm really not uh, clear here with my how I, I put this. But uh, I mean, if you are at the front and you need something, you have to inform uh, the government or the who who are you informing that okay we are we need this now and can you like put this forward? Uh, yeah, yeah. To the um, I don't know. Well. Walter might be able to correct me if I'm wrong here. I'm not too sure how it will, how it will be done there, but normally you would ha- you would go to your troop commander, and then your troop commander would go to his boss, and then his boss would have a connection in the government, and he would say the, to the procure, to the procurement side, he would say we need X, Y, and Z urgently on our, on our side of the front line. Can we get this? And then becomes, okay, we have this, we can provide it to you. But you have to remember, not everything is available and available to get to all units. So they may have to come to a compromise. And this is why it's essential that the West continue to provide as much equipment and at a steady rate and at a steady pace um, for, for the foreseeable future. So these so these calls don't go unanswered. When, when the troop commander phones his boss and say, oh, we need an ambulance because we're taking a lot of casualties and when we are trying to evacuate them, we're also we're getting hit again there, so it's not safe. Um, we need we need something else. He goes to his boss and says, and his boss says, okay, we have someone that we can send to you, but if they don't, they might need to come to a compromise. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? It's, it's just very hard, it's especially how big Ukraine is. Ukraine is a huge country that it, it's uh, it's not as easy as one thinks. Uh, okay, the they they say we uh, group group B or in Donbass needs a um, needs an ambulance, an armored ambulance. That that may be on the other side of the of the Donbass, or it may be far away, and it might take a long time to get it to them. So that and then you need to weigh up. Is it going to be da- too dangerous? And th- there's multiple things that come into play. But the more equipment that's provided by the West m- minimizes this issue because then you have more, um, more ambulances and more equipment to to hand out and distribute. If that makes sense to you. Yes, thank you. And I was also uh, thinking that uh, the West must be some somehow uh, up to date. Uh, when it's a question of war that uh, how how wh- what the needs are so uh i don't know how coordinated this is between for example it in is, europe nina it is deeply coordinated the uh there's an intricate very comprehensive and quite global and us british led um, logistics effort underway, which integrates digitally and directly with Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian armed forces. It is the most comprehensive logistics effort since the Berlin Air Bridge. Uh, thank you. And then, yes, just yesterday you had um, President Biden. He went and met with Lockheed Martin in America. Now they provide a lot of the American uh, military equipment 
aircraft and also I think they provide some some drones and, and other equipment as well. And he's he went and personally met with them yesterday. Along within the UK, I know there's been meetings with BAE systems and stuff like that. And these 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 defence leaders and and prime ministers and presidents have all sat down with these com- uh, companies and said, we need express distribution, uh, manufacturing, and we need to ramp everything up to support Ukraine. And I, I truly believe that that's what is going on. And it's 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 not often you see. Um, Air Force One and, and President Biden, or any president, in fact, flying out to personally meet with the, the heads of Lockheed Martin to, to discuss uh, arms deals. You know, normally these people fly to him, but he floated. He he went to them. Oh well, that sounds really great, and I hope everybody, uh, every country, uh, looks at that, and especially Germany right now. Yeah, well, we we can we can only hope. Germany, Germany is a work in progress, and as um, as was said at, at um, Ramstein, it's a it's a constitutional decision, and uh, it's up to it's up to Germany to make that. And I truly believe the people of Germany will make the correct decision. So we'll see what happens, but let's not let's not put put all our, our, all our eggs in one basket. Yeah, uh, one comment about uh, Germany and, and country, similar countries, I don't know, for example, uh, Hungary. Uh, German, it's possible to put a lot of pressure to the uh, government, also by p- people uh, in, in social media, because you can share uh, comment and uh, tag uh, people, for example, Olaf Schultz, uh, where it's been spread like uh, tens of thousands times. And uh, I'm sure that they they will look at that also. Well, to be honest, at this rate, I honestly don't think... Um, these people are looking at too much at where they're being mentioned because we all know that there, there's always one side that are not happy with what you're doing. So, to uh, I think they well they're well aware everybody's un, well a, a percentage of people are unhappy. But as has been pointed out, there will always be a percentage of people who are happy with certain decisions. So we just you you've got to take the good with the bad and hope that righteousness will prevail. That's all I will say on that. Thanks to everybody. Linda. Hi, thanks. Um, A question about uh, weaponry. Um, A day or three ago, uh, part of the discussion was some kind of a device that, or, or combination of devices uh, were able to zero in on um, uh, some Russian gunnery, you know, whatever, some rocket launcher or missile launcher or whatever, right? And as soon as they, as soon as it shot something, the exact location of where that came from was identified, 
and then immediately um, um, rockets or whatever, bombs, whatever, um, would be zeroed in on, on that particular uh, device. And so in my mind, the more that we can make this kind of um, anti-defense you know, uh, mechanisms, the more we can make it automatic. In other words, if they didn't shoot it, they wouldn't have gotten shot at. So like if you put your hand on a stove burner, you get burnt. If you don't want to get burnt, don't put your hand on the stove burner. But if you do, immediately you'll get burnt. And so like, so I'm wondering, you know, I don't remember the name of the, you know, this equipment, whatever it was. Oh, it's called you know, counter, counter battery artillery radar. That sounds good to me. <laughs> to what degree is that? Um, endemic um, around there and does that need to be beefed up because I see that as being extremely powerful um, if we wait two seconds I've uh, sent a request to, to one of our artillery men here, I don't know, CJ I sent you a request, I don't know if you want to come up and speak about this but the UK announced yesterday that they're sending a they've not given the number but an a package of counter-battery artillery radars um, to Ukraine from from the UK. So I imagine they'll be in the hands now. Uh, I'm sure you mentioned a couple of days ago how um, in, how important it would be for the Ukrainians to get hold of this equipment. So if you're available, I know you're busy just now, so you might not be able to, but at some point today, it'd be great to have your, your input, uh, maybe to, to speak about what... Um, what this could do and, how, and, and how, how much of a game changer this could be for the Ukrainians. And that might also answer Winda's question. Thanks. Um, a, yeah, 88. Uh, Linda, can you uh, repeat the question again? Oh, well, I don't remember the name of the equipment, but um, it was uh, a system that's able to locate the exact location of some um, gunner. artillery radar? That's it. Yeah, that's it. Simply, what, simply put, the, simply put, the counter artillery radar is um, a directional radar. So basically, you direct it at a field <clears throat> where you're expecting incoming artillery shells to come from. Mm -hmm. It alerts uh, troops deployed uh, within its protective range as to when those shells are fired and their expected uh, fallout location. And that is about. And therefore, and therefore, sorry, I'm sorry. And therefore, it also identifies where they are coming from. By relaying that information to Ukrainian artillery uh, teams, they can adjust and they can target uh, the artillery, the Russian ar artillery pieces firing uh, upon upon them or upon other Ukrainian forces. And that's about as automatic as it could as could be hoped for. Another, my analogy is. You know, if you don't want your hand burnt, don't put your hand on the stove burner. If you put your hand on the stone burner, you will automatically get burnt. You know, it's like an automatic thing. Is that about as automatic as could be hoped for? It is not really automatic because, uh, first of all, you need to send uh, recce elements, uh, either infantry or drones, to identify Russian artillery positions. Then 
you place your uh, counter battery radar in a way that its uh, detection arc covers the area where that those artillery uh, pieces are uh, are placed or have been pre-sighted or scouted or where you're expecting Russians to move artillery pieces. Once they fire, the radar detects that they had fired and probably can provide some information as well on where their shells might hit. That information is then relayed to other Ukrainian forces, artillery, or uh, if they have forward elements conducting uh, ambush and harassment operations or uh, can move on those uh, artillery uh, locations or sites or air force, for instance, depending on the firing solutions the Ukrainians have available against those sites, that they can then be deployed. But it, it is not really automated in any way. And Axel can actually say more about that than me. Follow, follow up, just, is that it's much of a game changer as it seems to me like it could be? It is a game changer, 100%. But, but Axel, right. please explain. Uh, as unfortunately, I just stepped into the car. I will have lost completely the thread of what uh, you were highlighting in terms of game changing. Well, counter, 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 yeah, counter battery radars. Yeah, counter battery radars uh, with better ranged, uh, sorry, with higher degrees of sensitivity, better triangulation capacity, and uh, uh, a longer range, therefore deeper into enemy territory are absolutely essential. And uh, the sensors now being delivered by the U.S. Uh, to the Ukrainians are substantially... The U.K. is the U- actually it's the U.K. that's providing them. Well, the Americans have been providing the first counter-battery sensors I'm aware of, but I'm glad that the U.K. has finally released the sensors they were discussing. I'm delighted. In any shape or form, both, uh, the, tech, both the kit from the U.K. as well as the Americans... Uh, and they're, um, what's it, the QC-30, wasn't it? Or the QB-30. The QC-30 is essentially two generations ahead of anything we are aware of that the Russians have ever used. Their depth of penetration behind the front lines of the Russians will give um, Ukrainian artillery a uh, very commensurate and very clear picture. And uh, the reaction time is so quick that... Even if Russian artillery were to be able to shoot and scoot, uh, that uh, essentially fire could be directed very quickly at them. This counter-battery sensor capacity also comes to play very well when there's mobile artillery, specifically, or replacement mobile artillery, which is what the Russians have been doing, that they are taking a lot of their old tanks, which they've brought to the front, in order to replace artillery. Now, that is obviously not nearly as, um, say, effective, uh, in terms of punch power, as modern artillery will be, or proper towed or uh, self-propelled artillery will be. However, the tanks are exceptionally mobile. And as such, if you have very good sensor capacity now and have better reaction time and significantly higher precision, then you can take out these additional mobile assets much more quickly. In that regard, it is absolutely stunning what the Ukrainians have already started uh, doing with it, and uh, I'm quite sure they'll get much better at it, and with wider distribution of these assets in uh, the battle theater, given that this is an artillery-driven uh, battle 
uh, they will make substantial headway. This is very, very good news for them, and uh, I commend uh, the Americans and the Brits for you uh, deploying it. Thank you, Axel. Does this answer your question, Linda? Yeah, it does, and it sounds really hopeful to me. I hope that there's many more than they could possibly hope for in place there, like today. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, Linda. the thing which you need, if I may just add, all, uh, add this on to it, and I think uh, Em and Othan uh, are fairly well aware of this, it's all nice and fine to have a counter battery radar, but unless and until you also have significantly bigger and larger numbers of precision and long-range artillery, that's all for naught. So you really have to make sure that all the goodies which uh, uh, the West actually has manufactured, has in store, or can manufacture, gets there, and Ukraine is allowed to buy it. And I think this has been the major discussion in recent days, and this also ties back to the uh, one point I wanted to make, earlier, I think it was in response to Nina, which I overheard prior to departing from the office. And that is that, yes, social media has an impact. But let's be realistic. Twitter currently in Germany has about a market share in terms of overall social media, somewhere in the 6.8 to 7% range of total social media interaction usage and market share. Uh, Facebook is still leading with somewhere over 65 or 70, if I'm not quite mistaken. It doesn't really matter. And the rest is allocated across all sorts of other services, from Pinterest, uh, Pinterest to whatnot. Now, what does it tell you? A, the distribution of Twitter in Germany is still fairly low compared to the U.S. Yes, there are many other countries in Europe who have the same, share the same fate. And yes, you uh, probably uh, say arrive at the doorstep with Twitter of many people who are some, in some shape or form more active and maybe more in the know or more interested in politics and media and the likes. However, if you do not have sufficient mass media reflection of these matters, you cannot actually impact people's, um, say, understanding of this war, and you can't, therefore, uh, reach them sufficiently in order for them to address their politicians. So what do you do? There is one way where the whole of Europe can make a difference in regard to Germany. As I've stressed many times, I am German, I love my country, and uh, come hell and high water, there are good things about it, and uh, it can be a force for good whenever it wants to. Now, how do you make them understand that they should be a force for good? Well, you have to, um, say, approach those people who are constantly in touch with the world, meaning the German exporters, German companies who go across, and not by uh, giving them the signal, oh, we're not going to buy from them. Forget that for a second. You can, uh, say, try to do your own decisions as you see fit, but m more importantly, see them as a reverse communication channel. If you talk to your local subsidiary of a German company delivering goods and services to you, if you talk or if you send a letter, and I mean it, seriously, a letter, you can send a letter via email, but make it your own letter, make it your own mission to write a few paragraphs to the extent that you, how you see this and how you see the inaction of the German government or the slow action of the German government. Tell them that. Write to your uh, Mercedes-Benz dealer, to your uh, representative of BMW. Write to them. Make it clear to them the next time when you change your tires 
the next time you go there to pick up uh, whatever kind of uh, kit or maintenance package, write to your favorite um, kitchenware or, say, home uh, utensil provider such as Miele. World-class products by world-class companies, and these are people who understand their markets. And it's not that they should act out of fear, per se. No, 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 no. They are your reverse access to the elite of German government and business. If you tell them that you cannot abide by a com country not supporting Ukraine, but willing to sell all over the world, if you make this a pragmatic, collaborative statement, that has a huge impact. You can also write to the respective embassy in your country. So if you write to the German embassy in the UK, it will be taken seriously. These people in diplomatic service are very serious and proper people. They know where the wind is coming from. They are the antenna of Germany. The German foreign trade chambers all across Europe and the world are a fantastic link to local businesses and societies. Write to them. Speak to them. They are proper people. They are, again, the antenna of Germany all across the world. If you take five minutes of your time to spend on this matter, it will have a significantly bigger impact than just tweeting out something. You should do the tweeting. Yes, of course. You should engage in social media. Absolutely. We do this here jointly. And this is an important channel. But in this important channel, we should always be mindful what are the channels else we can use. And if you are in Portugal or if you are in uh, uh, in the UK or Norway, your reach into German society is limited by both language as, by, as well as by the pure direct access. Unless, of course, you own a media company, then do so. Unless, of course, you speak on German television or radio, please do so. Bring this information forward. I could only please appeal to everyone in Europe who has a sense to do so. The German companies are the main outlet for communication in the world. Use them for your concern. Tell them what you think and ask them to please themselves make a difference in the debate. Thank you. We have a queue. Please raise your hand. If you want to talk, you can use the heart plus icon on the bottom right corner to use yes. Thank you very much. Um, September Claire, please go ahead. Uh, sorry, no, I, I don't have a question. I've already asked mine. Sorry. I don't okay, know thank how you. to um, um, no mute my mic. Uh, SSD, please go ahead. Hi. Uh, yeah, can okay, you hear me? Loud and clear, SS. Go ahead. Okay, cool. Uh, I got a question um, it's regarding to the UAV on the Russian side. Uh, how, much th how much threat do you think uh, those UAV is giving to um, the, the kind of threats given to the um, Ukrainian troops? Because uh, for the Twitter, we can see all those videos they are shooting by the UAVs. Uh, looks like they are using those to, um, to locate uh, the, the position and things like it's causing a lot of damage. Is there any way um, to counter that? The Ukrainians are using uh, UAVs to discover UAVs and are using uh, anti-drone guns. Uh, I've seen uh, footage of the uh, platform that is based on the Skybeam platform, 
being supplied by an Estonian company. It is the Skybeam, but it's being supplied under another brand name. Uh, so Ukrainians have access to uh, anti-drone guns, maybe not in the quantities uh, they need to operate, uh, but they have been successfully shooting down uh, all antennas on other Russian UAVs. Does this answer your question? Um, yeah, um, this actually leads to the following question. Um, how well do you think uh, the, those Ukrainians, uh, Ukrainians can um, protect those weaponries provided by the West? Because I don't think this, uh, they, they can generate those things. If they are destroyed, it's gone. Um, how well do you think they can pro- uh, protect those, um, those weaponries? How well can they protect which weaponries exactly? Uh, like those um, artilleries, for, uh, especially for those uh, M777s, for example. Well, given the fact that the 777 has a longer range, uh, they are pretty much out of the range of the current artillery systems fielded by the Russian forces in Ukraine. So if well-placed, they can take out those artillery positions without being threatened by them. And do you think they will use those cruise missiles or those longer range weapons to destroy the, um, those artilleries from the Russian side? It is possible. It is possible that they could also send in their air force. Uh, the Ukrainian airspace is still contested and is still mostly, mostly controlled by the Ukrainian armed forces. Okay, thank you. That's my question. Thank you very much. Thank you, SS. Johnny? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm just looking at the at the map of Ukraine at the moment. I'm just wondering how long are the front lines that they have there, just given how big the country is. Is it is it similar to what we saw in World War Two, or is it smaller pockets of front lines? Um, yeah, I'm just just wondering. Sorry, can you repeat your question, Johnny? Yeah, I'm just wondering how long the front lines are that they have in the Ukraine at the minute. Is it are they are they, are they going on sort of like World War Two style, massive, massive, massive front lines, or is that, are they smaller, um, smaller lines? World War Two was fought in several countries and several continents, so World War Two will have longer front lines. The front lines right now are in the Eastern Front and in the Southern Eastern Front, so definitely um, shorter than the ones in World War Two and World War One. Yeah, I meant, I meant, are they, I meant just the ones there. But are they, are they stretching? Is it, is every gap? Is it, is it, is the full distance covered by soldiers, or are the gaps in between it, or is, it, is the full thing stretched? It is stretched, and the Ukrainian forces are quite dug in in the locations where it matters to stop uh, Russian advances, and they have been successfully doing so. Axel, would you like to add on that? Yeah, the light infantry, you're absolutely right. Um, and the light infantry setup of the Ukrainian armed forces provides for a very, very flexible defense uh, all along the line of contact. And uh, therefore, whilst you may see what, uh, what you described as a stretched line, um, there is sufficient control over the line by the Ukrainians and their defense centers. So, I know to be, by the way, if you were to take, the, for example, the line of 1941 or 1942, and uh, in January, February, or in 1943, all along Ukraine, you will probably will have found that, yes, of course, there was a massive force uh, uh, at hand, and therefore substantially more uh, personnel and material in in that space and along the line. However, 
density is not everything. The question is, can you actually penetrate? Can you the these sectors? Can you punch through, create attack vectors, and then start a whatever kind of pincer move to encircle? And uh, the Ukraine, Ukrainian light infantry defense in that regard, with its delaying tactics, is substantially more versatile than the Russians can tolerate with their slowness of process and advance, as well as their massive supply issues. So in that regard, uh, the Ukrainians have, due to their territory, due to the knowledge of their armed force and their capacity and their awareness as to what the limitations of their um, say, options were, uh, at that time, taken the right path. They've outfoxed the Russians uh, so far at every turn. Thank you, Axel. Johnny, does this answer your question? Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers, mate. Julia, please go ahead. Thank you. I wanted to fill what Nina, what Nina was saying and ask a question for Axel. What would be your recommendation for German citizens to, to impact, to make an impact in the most effective way now? So besides of social media voting and uh, going to demonstration, what would you suggest? Because all the recommendations were like more for foreigners, but for German citizens, uh, citizens being now in Germany, how can we at least try to change the public opinion, this public perception? Well, you can speak to your colleagues uh, where you work. You can speak to your neighbors, your friends. You can go to your tennis or football club, to your whatever uh, clubs you're invested in. And Germans have a very vibrant club, uh, say, as an association, sports association, as a general club scene, which is important to them. It's part and parcel of the social fabric. Speak to everyone. Social engagement on community level starts by speaking up. Or in German, kein Blatt vor den Mund nehmen. Don't veil your mouth. And that also means going to your political party. And most Germans have never, ever entered the offices of any of, their, any of their representatives. And they hardly ever know them unless they vote for them. Uh, and even then they don't really know them. Talk to your representatives, meaning pick up the dang phone. Go there. Actually, the best thing is to take a few minutes out of your time. Everyone is busy. I fully appreciate this. But go to the local uh, office of your respective political party or go to the party of the other side, which you may not like necessarily, but who is in charge. Whoever is representing your voting district, go to them. Ask to talk to them kindly, politely. That's the point. Everything which is, um, shall we say, too emotional in Germany leads to nothing, as we all know. Germans are, in that regard, very pragmatic, and they become extremely defensive when you're too emotional. So if you go there and tell them, here are the facts, this is what I think, it seems to me that we're not doing enough, how are you going to change this? Would you please transport this to the politicians on state level, on uh, federal level? And trust me, if thousands and thousands of Germans do exactly that, there is change. This is how it works. Political will forms from the ground up, and in reverse order, is then refined by the political elites because they respond to their anticipation as to how the population wants them to move. There is always inertia, there's always limitations, but essentially this is how it works. You have to organize from the ground up. Thank you, Axel. Uh, Christopher? 
So I have two questions right now. One is in regard to Belarus. There are claims now that the sorry about my dogs. Uh, there are claims now that Belarus is starting to mobilize. That Kievan Independent actually posted that, and then the second one is that the Kremlin spokesperson said that the rumors of Russia mobilizing on May 9th are just rumors, which every time Russia says something, it what it does means two different things. So I will I, basically I wanted I want to see what your guys' opinions on are on those topics. Belarusian exercises are just uh, Belarusian exercises. They are not mobilization per se. Even if it's a mobilization for conducting exercises that can then be used to launch an attack against Ukraine, we'll see. As for the parade on May 9th or anything coming out of Russia, at this point, we'll see. If they want to go ahead and do something, let them do it. Uh, We don't have any information regarding uh, either uh, events and whether or not uh, they have implications on uh, the northern front in Ukraine or mobilization in Russia to add to their troops in the eastern front. So it's only a matter of days now. We'll see. Uh, Mel, please go ahead. Hi, uh, I have uh, questions that I am worried about. Uh, I'm not close to Europe or anywhere else. I'm in um, Pacific uh, area, uh, all the way from New Zealand. Uh, I was just wondering, uh, the the allies, uh, we have committed uh, so many um, uh, support to Ukraine. Uh, uh, let us say that Ukraine managed to get uh, all the territory back from Don, uh, Donetsk to uh, to Maropoli to Kharkiv. Uh, if they get all their territory back, uh, will they do uh, any uh, revenge attack to uh, Russia, to Moscow? Um, uh, no, they, no, 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 that's they, never, that's never going to happen. There's no do. way Ukraine, Ukraine, wait there a minute, Ukraine are in no way like Russia and they have no intentions of ever trying to step on Russia's land. All Ukraine's intentions are is to yes. take Russia off their land. Uh, it's just not, uh, some people have asked that, but they're never, even though they've been given all this equipment, there's, there will be no, no need and no intention ever of Ukraine to ever go and step yes. and try and take parts uh, of Russia. Absolutely. To my second question is that if if they uh, manage to control their territory and um, uh, um, what is the, the the plan for all these countries that are neighbors to Russia is it is it to join NATO uh, or is it for their own security to join NATO? W- what do you guys think, uh, Excel or um, um, M? Are you asking about northern countries? Are you asking about yeah, Sweden? Yes. Um, well, Finland, Putin, Sweden, yeah. Putin, Putin, Putin basically achieved everything he set out to uh, to prevent. NATO is a defensive alliance. Sovereign governments have the right to pursue whatever economic, political, or defensive alliance they wish to pursue. So, having seen the naked aggression of Russia against Ukraine, Sweden and Finland, considering NATO membership, makes perfect sense. It is their right under international law they will apply to nato membership and they will be accepted on the spot and russia can't do anything about it putin can't do anything about it no one can do anything about it Uh, what if they um, act aggressively towards those countries is that means that um, the nato countries will start defending um, 
all those countries that joined, oh, I, you know, in. I would be surprised if Russia goes against Finland, given the history. But we have a very common saying here, uh, and excuse my French. Well, fuck about and find out. I appreciate the answer. That that's exactly what I want to hear because um, I'm, I'm, I'm. We are worried. Uh, we might not be close to you guys, but you know the war has been affecting around the world and and all the way from the bottom of the earth. Uh, we um, we manage to hear the news every day uh, on our news on our newspaper everywhere, and um, we uh, truly support Ukraine in in their. Um, sovereignty and uh, we just want to know that you know they are safe and, and we see all these images and it's very 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 disturbing and i think R russia definitely need to be uh, accountable for this this and, and play responsibility for this uh, and uh, we just want to know where we're going to go forward yeah well uh I'm in Cairo, so I'm not really on the European continent. And the bottom of the earth is probably burning like it is always. So, yes, the uh, the effects and the impacts on countries in all corners of the earth are being felt. And thank you for your support and for your statement. Uh, Nina, please go ahead. Uh, I want to thank Axel uh, of the encouragement to right straight to the to these uh, industries and companies and absolutely i will do it and i have uh, people who can uh, support this also in finland i don't mind <laughs> to write to the german companies uh, i have been doing this uh, writing to politicians here uh, like emails straight to them and asking if there is <laughs> if there is uh, something that i don't agree with I, I put the pressure and uh, I'm in groups on Facebook who who also do that. Uh, we we want to address it straight to the uh, those who who are making the decisions. So <clears throat> I am I am going to write to uh, those companies who, for example, in Finland there are some companies which are still uh, <clears throat> in Russia. Uh, and uh, I didn't think of this, that I can write to, straight to them. So uh, that's what I'm going to do to those companies, which I know. And also uh, I do everything what I can for uh, putting pressure. Uh, I'm just one person, but I, I have many friends who I can get with me. Axel, so would you like to comment on thank this you, one? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Axel for this uh, great encouragement. And I, also I want to say that the way to do it, uh, if you do it in uh, aggressive or uh, like a, a passive aggressive way, you will never get what you want. So the way is to uh, kindly ask uh, questions. That's the best way. Thank you, Nina. Kindness uh, is known to go a long way, Axel. Yeah, I could never have said it better. Nina is completely correct. I mean, it has to be firm, but it has to be polite. Absolutely. Dynamic Zero, please go ahead. Uh, hello, can you hear me? Loud and clear. Great. Uh, firstly, uh, greetings to the whole audience and the hosts from uh, Greater China uh, and the Access challenges that come with uh with with 
um, accessing your marvelous commentary. Uh, and thank you for accompanying me, uh, Axel Yehuda, uh, OSIN88, uh, the rest of the gang, Mr. Lech, obviously, for the past two months um, and providing such clarity. Uh, I'm calling in just to really query something I heard uh, this morning, my morning. Uh, it's been 12 hours since I've, I've had a chance to to kind of tap in. Um I believe it was a contributor who went by the name of Mike something, and we were talking about Russian artillery. Uh, and he started to throw out some figures that really perplexed me. Notably, I can't remember the specific math or arithmetic around it, but it was something like Ukraine has 35 mechanized brigades, and each mechanized brigade requires uh, a minimum of, of 20 units of standalone artillery pieces um and and bottom line his maths was uh to get up to kind of the, uh, theoretical strength uh the ukrainian military required uh 30 i think it was something like 30 times 20 uh single artillery pieces making for 2400 artillery pieces to achieve parity or planned parity with theoretical force strength or or parity with the the russian uh the the, the russian ogre um which got me thinking uh the, the 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 british military for example has a grand total of 89 m triple seven uh publicly recorded pieces in its inventory uh, the french military has all of 15 towed artillery units uh, publicly recorded in its in inventory, obviously quite a bit more on the SDG front. Um, and I, I've been listening to you guys for a long time, uh, and I was just surprised that nobody picked up, given your slash brackets our uh, kind of mi mission for, for clarity and truth through the fog of war, um, no, nobody picked up on the fact that that, that I, I believe he was called, the gentleman was called Matt or Mike uh, was making a claim that that the the Ukrainian military needed two thousand four hundred uh, units of artillery uh, to achieve its planned strength and was obviously well below that on the supply front. When if you go and kind of tot up what's in the publicly recorded arsenals of most Western European uh, armies. Uh, the total number of, 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 of barrels falls well, but well, well below that total. Uh, I apologise if I'm picking up on a point that has been uh, has been covered in the past few hours. I haven't had a chance to tap in, as I said, um, but it's it's a point that I, I has made me feel compelled to put out there to the group um, to understand what's really going on with that kind of force analysis because it strikes me as being. Uh, grossly disproportionate to the analytical requirement of, well, as far as you can be analytical of, of what's required on the ground. And I don't know who's on the channel right now. I'm going to myself, but hopefully. Can I check? Yeah, you're good. So, Dynam. Let's put it this way. Let's take 93rd Mechanized Brigade, Ukrainian. So 
artillery unit of the brigade, the 93rd Art, uh, Mechanized Brigade. Actually, we had the soldier from this, from the aforementioned brigade earlier today, giving us the information about what's going on around Izum, where they are currently deployed. <clears throat> so let's say, let's take 93rd Brigade, and according to ideal, uh, like blueprint that they should be following, of course, we are far from ideal conditions. The artillery unit of the brigade consists of uh, a battalion of uh, 2S3Ms, Akatsia, uh, a battalion of 2S1, Hvozdeka, a battalion of rocket artillery BM-21, Parhrad, and also anti-tank division or battalion MT-12 Rapira. Each of, this, of these consists of, uh, I believe, at least a dozen of either mechanized uh, self-propelled, pardon, self-propelled artillery units or uh, rocket art artillery units, specifically BM-21s. Again, this is just one uh, Ukrainian mechanized brigade. So this is where the mess is coming from. Now consider how many brigades Ukraine has and consider the something that we constantly hear from people who are engaged in warfare on the front line. There is a lack of artillery and significant lack. This is the number one issue, literally from everyone who is fighting right now. A lack of artillery, and they have to relocate artillery from other directions to cover hot zones and hot spots and reshuffle. And there is an overwhelming upper hand of Russian artillery in case of uh, numbers. So I'll leave it to Axel now. Yeah, just uh, let me give you give uh, Dynamic a, a little highlight. I think there's also there's one level of confusion and that is between artillery and mortar. Most mechanized divisions typically have a mixture of this and obviously with different ranges, different tasks. And I'm quite sure from what you've uh, told us that you are very well aware of this. Um, currently, two armies in Europe uh, have the largest stock in terms of artillery, that is the Finnish army and the Polish army. Now, the Finnish army currently has about 710 or 715 howitzers of different kinds, uh, and a couple of them under procurement, uh, probably at our Finnish friends who are listening on a regular basis or speaking even here can correct me, but I think it's 715. Hello? Yes, we, sorry. we lost. Yeah, I to call at the same time. So it seems that uh, there's, I think it's 740 mortars, and then there is about 120 to 130 uh, uh, self, um, rocket propelled uh, grenade launchers. Uh, so that is just the Finnish army. Now, the Ukrainian army has technically a larger potential. But as Walter highlighted it, it has not fulfilled. It's, it has not kitted out all its uh, um, regiments as much as it should. So not all these 
uh, have their four battalions full, fully kitted out with mortars and artillery. That's exactly the need, and Walter quite nicely highlighted it. So, and yes, you're right. The long range uh, and very versatile Western kit is significantly better and replaces a larger number of other smaller uh, and lesser, cap uh, let's say, and uh, artillery with lesser capability. And uh, as a consequence, yes, they, with more triple sevens and with more uh, Panzer Blitzer 2000, they obviously can replace a lot of what they would otherwise need in terms of older Soviet artillery systems. So in that regard, um, it, it both is right. Yes, they don't need as much, but they need better. And they, of that, they still need more than they have. And yes, they need a lot more mortar, and which is included in their artillery calculations. Thank you, Axel. And uh, we were joined by Maria Aida Count, and uh, welcome. Morning, Walter. Thanks for uh, accepting my uh, request there to, to speak. Um, I just, uh, it's, it's Jen speaking this morning. Uh, as you know, uh, I've got an interest in uh, artillery, um, and I just uh, joined as you guys were discussing my favorite topic, the guns. Thank God for the guns. Um, and I just wanted to note that uh, no two militaries are alike when it comes to um, artillery and how they employ them and what their actual numbers are. Um, so I think it's really difficult to get a you know a fixed idea of what type of or correct, uh, how many guns the Ukrainian uh, armed forces should have without uh, understanding how they intend to employ them. If that makes sense. Axel, would you like to respond to that? All right, Maria Aid, can you please uh, repeat your last message? Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I just uh, was uh, was mentioning that uh, it's, it's difficult to have a true appreciation for um, how many guns are going to be required by the Ukrainian armed forces, uh, just because it will vary from one military to the next based on how they intend to uh, actually employ those pieces on the battlefield, if that makes sense. So, so just the estimate will vary uh, from, from one person's calculations to the next. And uh, without speaking directly to those who are planning uh, that, that, that aspect, it'll be hard to actually have a pinpoint number that's 100% accurate. Yes, absolutely, 100%. All right, everyone, we have a couple of uh, free uh, speaker slots. If you would like to ask a question or bring up a topic for discussion, feel free to send us a speaker request and we'll answer your questions and discuss your topics to the extent of our knowledge. The Walter Report space is a space that's being run 24-7 to bring you updates on developments on the ground in Ukraine. Also, the Walter space or the Walter Report space is... Uh, Proud to support Maria Aid. Maria Aid is a not-for-profit organization that provides non-lethal aid to Ukraine, the Ukrainian government, and the Ukrainian armed forces, including medical kits, drones, scopes, and bulletproof vests. Visit MariaAid.org if you would like to help. You can spread the word as well and find Maria Aid on Instagram to see the results of your help and your contributions.
Yes, thank you. Thank you, Haman. Uh, thank you, Jen. And again, specifically, something as little as individual first aid kit uh, 